I'm Emily Hawthorne, a Middle East and North Africa analyst at Stratfor, and this podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, the world's leading geopolitical intelligence platform. Individual, team, and enterprise memberships are available at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. There's a line you can draw between the mom-and-pop grocery store for whom geopolitics is obviously irrelevant and the Fortune 200 corporation for whom it's obviously relevant. And the main point I would want to make is, is that that line has shifted over the last 25 years. Welcome to the Stratford podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratford.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. And in this episode, we're looking at the role for geopolitics and business today. You were just listening to part of our conversation with Jay Ogilvy, director of Stratfor Worldview's Board of Contributors. In part one of the podcast, he sits down with Stratfor Editor-in-Chief David Judson to discuss the business case for geopolitical intelligence and how globalization has evolved. Then in part two, we'll hear an excerpt from a recent live webcast with Stratfor Vice President of Strategic Analysis, Roger Baker, and IESE Business School Professor of Strategy, Mike Rosenberg. They'll take a close look at the geopolitical landscape for business today and how business leaders can adjust. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Judson. I'm the editor-in-chief here at Stratfor, and Today, I've got the pleasure of having a conversation with Jay Ogilvie, chairman of our board of contributors. Uh, welcome to Austin, Jay. Good to see you again. Good to be back. Yeah. Jay, we've been having this internal conversation, as you know, for some time uh, about how to better and best contour the types and flow of our analyses for the many and diverse audiences that we have. And, of course, one of the big audiences for Stratfor that is diverse in and of itself is the business audience. And the, we've been talking internally about the, the business case for geopolitics. And um, as a guy who founded and ran a firm for a quarter century called the Global Business Network, um, I think it's axiomatic that you're going to have some thoughts on this. Um, just a few. Just a few. Yeah. Um, so as the geo of geopolitics is changing kind of before our eyes, how is the ways that businesses should – be engaged and uh, developing their understanding of geopolitics. How is that evolving in your view? Uh, when the question first came up, uh, the, the relevance, the use of geopolitics for, for corporations rather than just curious individuals, uh, when I first heard the question, I thought, well, gosh, isn't that obvious? Because I'd just been living it for 25 years. But uh, I realized that, no, it's not altogether obvious because the companies with which we spent most of our time were generally Fortune 200, you know, very large companies uh, operating all over the globe. So the relevance of global intelligence, uh, geopolitics, was just obvious. I mean, if, you, if you're working, say, with Royal Dutch Shell or ExxonMobil, are you going to have access to those oil fields in eastern Russia uh, or Venezuela? or Bogota, um, will you have access or not? So it's, it's not just a question of marketing all over the world, but sourcing, accessing. So with those companies, uh, the, the, the case for geopolitics is, is just obvious. What I think has changed over the time I've been in this space is that the case becomes 
obvious for many, many, many more companies. It's not just the Fortune 200 anymore. Uh, I mean, there's a line you can draw between the mom-and-pop grocery store for whom geopolitics is obviously irrelevant and the Fortune 200 corporation for whom it's obviously relevant. And the main point I would want to make is, is that that line has shifted over the last 25 years. There are many, many more companies that are now actively linked into the rest of the globe because of the process of globalization. I mean, you mentioned this. It was interesting. I had a conversation with a reader uh, not two weeks ago from Turkey manufacturing business with a turnover of roughly $10 million a year, so you know, not mom and pop, but hardly, hardly shell, uh, who's was really keen on our analysis of what's happening in Mexico with NAFTA as that relationship in North America is stressed. Does that create or not create opportunity for manufacturing platforms outside of North America to get in on the game in some way, right? Uh, this kind of brought a big chunk of the discussion home to me because this is you know, a pretty small company. And I have a friend uh, who built a business before she married into a lot of money, uh, but she earned quite a bit of money herself starting a high-end lingerie company. Well, in the early years, she was sourcing in Toledo or Dubuque and selling in the United States and never a care about the rest of the world. Well, today she's doing most of her sourcing in China, and actively debating the question, should she relocate from China to even lower cost markets? So, so she's got to be geopolitically savvy to, to run her company. Well, I also wanted to ask you the same set of questions from, from kind of this angle that, I mean, while the, the, the globe is changing, maybe the structure of business um, has changed or needs to change. Mike Rosenberg, uh, contributor, Zephyr, who's actually written a book on Geopolitics and Strategy uh, teaches in the MBA program at IESE University in uh, Spain. And he argues that there was a time when companies that were globally engaged were kind of better equipped to deal with geopolitical change and volatility because they had the old-fashioned concept of country managers. Uh And as companies, uh, particularly multinational companies, have moved to matrix organizations where you've got the, you know, Europe, Middle East, Africa vice president who flies in and out once a year and meets his team in a hotel, that sort of specialization um, and standardization has eroded their ability to kind of keep, have their ear to the ground. Any thoughts on on that dynamic on how those how the I, structural I, questions play into this? I have seen it. Uh, happen in a couple of the companies I've dealt with, that move from country managers to area managers. And the cost there is in a loss of kind of local intelligence. There's there's clearly a loss in local intelligence. Uh, another kind of structural shift in the business world um, that I think is relevant is the, the move from uh, the, the kind of dematerialization move, the move from manufactured goods, automobiles, food, uh, to informational goods and services, uh, financial services, uh, stuff that you don't need to move around the world in a container, uh, but you can flash across the globe in half a second, speed of light. With that 
dematerialization of large chunks of the economy. I think it, it accelerates the process of globalization, makes us more inter interlinked around the globe, uh, so that we need greater sophistication in geopolitical intelligence. The Which takes me to another kind of piece of the puzzle. Um, Roger Baker, vice president for analysis here at Stratfor, has talked a lot about how the era of globalization as we sort of perceived it in the 1990s as it began kind of emerging as a concept kind of came to not an end but a inflection point with the 2008 financial crisis. The And we've been struggling with globalization and its uh, effects and free trade and we see that in our domestic U.S. politics. We see it in European politics. We see it in many, many places that maybe we're moving not away from globalization <laughs> but to a different kind of globalization that doesn't sort of have the same assumptions of a kind of a standard, ever, ever more standard world, mm -hmm. but one with lots of continuing, you know, engagement and, you know, instantaneous communications around the globe and people can flash information and financial goods around the globe or get on airplanes. But the landscape is getting more diverse in terms of the standards and the tariffs and the rules. Um, and protectionism is rising in many, many places. Thoughts on how that is part of the discussion we need to be having and thinking through? I think you put your finger on it, that the, the shape of globalization has moved beyond the kind of imperialist idea that we can take one pattern for all, that what's good for Peter is good for Paul, and instead get more sophisticated about cultural differences, historical differences, uh, religious differences. Uh, these, these things make a difference in what people want, what people are willing to pay for. And if we don't get more sophisticated about those differences, I think we miss a lot of the opportunities that are there in a more globalized economy. Can we think about this? Uh, you know, in the meeting we were having earlier today, we got I mean, Parag Khanna mm -hmm. um, in his book, uh, Connectography, talks a lot about the combination of centrifugal – I don't know if he phrased it this way, but he talks about the – combination of centrifugal versus centripetal forces at the same time. Right, right. And yeah. the informational forces are centripetal. Right. We're, we're all in each other's faces on Facebook and Twitter every day. But the cultural and populist and nationalistic forces are all centrifugal. People are saying, we want to do it our way. <laughs> uh, uh, you see Brexit, you see the uh, separatist movements in Catalonia. Th this this centrifugal Trifigal dynamic is something that I think Paragana has very deftly put in front of our eyes. Well, you used the phrase one time, uh, it may have been in the context of a conversation about his work, thee will be known by one's Federal Express bills or something to that, words <laughs> yeah, to that effect. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah this, this is Manuel Castell's wonderful work and his great monumental three-volume, The Information Age, where he lays out what he calls the space of flows, rather than looking at the borders that separate uh, different countries from one another. We should be looking at that uh, river of information that connects London to Moscow, uh, New York to San Francisco. It's uh, San Francisco to Hong Kong. It's those rivers of information that he calls the space of flows. And I just like to encapsulate it in that phrase, ye shall know them by their FedEx bills. 
Or their DHL bills. Yeah. Or their, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. So there was an internal memo that you circulated on this um, not too long ago in which you – I love this phrase – to ignore geopolitical forecasting is like ignoring the weather forecast before setting off on a picnic. Pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know about you, but I don't like to get rained on at picnics. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, we'll try and figure out ways to build better umbrellas um, here. Um. <laughs> and also, I, I, I don't want to just talk about the rain, but the sun. I think I think a greater geopolitical intelligence opens up not just dangers, but opportunities. Right. Uh, and we shouldn't forget that. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. Well, this has been uh, a great if all too brief conversation, Jay. But uh, again, thanks for coming down to see us here in Austin. My and, pleasure. Uh, I'd love well, to get back. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. In his conversation with Jay Ogilvie, Stratfor Editor-in-Chief David Judson noted a conversation with the Vice President of Strategic Analysis Roger Baker about how the era of globalization reached an inflection point with the 2008 financial crisis. In part two of the podcast, we'll hear an excerpt from a live webcast conversation with Roger Baker and IESE Business School Professor of Strategy, Mike Rosenberg, about what underlying forces have changed and what business leaders can do to navigate today's increasingly complex international environments. Navigating those emerging global developments and long-term shifts in geopolitical power is part of our daily work here at Stratfor. To learn more about individual, team, and enterprise access to Stratfor Worldview, our premier digital platform, visit us at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now to our excerpt from a recent webcast with Stratfor's Roger Baker and Mike Rosenberg. I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about um, how we're seeing the world system today and how we've seen it change to get to where we're at right now. If we go back to the Cold War, the Cold War was actually a very stable period of world history. It sounds a little anachronistic, but the, the two large powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, in many ways constrained some of the extremes of what could happen in disruptions around the world. When the Cold War broke down, you started to see a fracturing of the countries and the spaces that had been squeezed between those two large powers. And the world was seeking a new uh, structure or a new balance. What came out of the Cold War was a large United States, a United States that in many ways had no peer power. And what stabilized that was effectively three pillars of global power that emerged. It was the United States as the strongest military entity, it was Europe and the European Union in particular that in many ways shaped politics and regulatory structures around the world and influenced that. And it was China as the economic pillar of the world. This created this new sort of uh, stable system that people understood, that people were able to make decisions about uh, and around and see how things were going to be playing out in the future. The global financial crisis, however, crashed that. Uh, it first pulled the United States down, then the European Union. And when the European Union went down, that finally pulled the rug out from underneath the Chinese and their long-running export ex uh, economic model. What has come out of that now is that there is no stable pattern yet in the, in, in the world. We have a, a Russia that is working to reassert itself around its borders and boundaries, not necessarily because it's aggressive uh, in trying to expand, but because it knows it has a major demographic crisis coming in the near future, and it's trying to secure itself. We have a China that is being pulled out in a way that it hasn't seen in much of its history because its supply lines, 
its economic patterns have reached across the globe, and it now finds that it needs to match that with political and in the near future, probably military power to secure that space. We have a United States that has been engaged in conflict for a decade and a half, and that after long, extensive times of overseas operations, the United States will often pull back internally. It really doesn't matter which president was coming into the United States. There was going to be a bit of a retrenchment of U.S. activism on a global scale. We have a European Union that is facing the challenges of a resurgence of nationalism and subnationalism. And we're seeing rather than the full expansion of this new multinational state, we're seeing the disintegration of the European Union. It may not go away, uh, but it's not going to its full extreme ideas of effectively eliminating the concept of underlying nations, which in many ways were what uh, in the past has been a source of crisis and, and conflict uh, across the European peninsula. So in the end, what we have is a world right now that is unbalanced, that's destabilizing, and that in many ways is trying to seek a new equilibrium. And, and Roger, what, what, what strikes me as I look at, at these issues is while you and your guys at Stratfor and, and governments and, and journalists, uh, military people spend huge amounts of time looking at this issue and looking at how this new equilibrium might come about, most people in big business kind of pretend it's all going to go away and, and kind of live in a world where they don't really recognize any of these pillars and they're just trying to do business around the world as if there will never be any major conflict in the world, there will never be any major disruptions. And, 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 and it's really as if there were kind of two separate universes doing things on an international way. Uh, one who is you know, completely obsessed with what's in the news cycle and what's going on, and another which is basically assuming that business as usual will last forever. Uh, so we've got companies with you know tremendously complicated and fragile supply chains are reaching across borders. We've got uh, executives who fundamentally don't pay too much attention to these things until they kind of blow up. And when they do blow up, these companies are, are, are taken by surprise. In my experience, most industries and most companies simply don't pay a lot of attention to this, uh, except perhaps in, in specific sectors such as oil and gas, mining, and the financial services industry. And, and Roger, I understand you have some experience talking to, to, to people in these businesses, and maybe they do a little bit better job of balancing or integrating geopolitical analysis to, to business analysis. We, you know, we've traditionally found, uh, at least when we, we founded the company, that it was uh, extractive industries in many ways that were the ones who first recognized uh, very clearly the need for this type of broader-based geopolitical analysis and intelligence. In many ways, that's logical. These are companies that have a very long ROI uh, on their initial investments. They're going into places uh, that are not well-developed. Um, and they need to understand not only today and not only right now or the legality or the, the profit margin at this moment, but they really need to be able to see into the future. In many ways, that's one of the strengths of geopolitics in helping businesses look forward. Um, when we talk about geopolitics, in some ways, what we're talking about is not what you hear often in the media. Geopolitics is not the same thing as international relations, current events, or war and conflict. Geopolitics is a study that draws on the intersection of organized people and place over time. In other words, it's how has a place and the population in that place developed over decades, over centuries, over millennia, and how does that impact and shape the way in which those people, those places act and interact with each other 
perceive the risks and threats and perceive the opportunities from countries around them. That's it for this episode of the Stratfall podcast. If you'd like to hear the complete hour-long webcast with Roger Baker and Mike Rosenberg, we'll include a link in the show notes. You can also find more of their writing on this topic, as well as columns from Jay Ogilvie and David Judson on Stratfall Worldview. If you're not already a Stratfall Worldview member, be sure to visit us at worldview.stratfall.com slash subscribe to learn more about individual, team, and enterprise-level access. You can even contribute to the conversation by sharing your insights in Worldview's forums section. That's where you can engage with other readers as well as Stratfall analysts, editors, and contributors on the latest developments. If you have a comment or an idea for a future episode of the podcast, email us at podcast at stratfor.com or give us a call at 1-512-744-4300, extension 3917, to leave a message. And if you have a moment, also consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate your feedback. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis and forecasting that brings global events into valuable perspective, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.